Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, we are in a important time in history, and so I am excited. I'm excited that you are here to be with me to learn, to talk, to ask, uh, and to seek. And so I am pumped that you are here. Tonight on the show is my man, Rick Daniels, and I'm going to bring him out in just a little bit, uh, and I'm super excited for you all to talk with him. He is, he is actively chasing a PhD right now and uh, is, a, is a higher ed professional, incredible public speaker, and, uh, and just a great man and a dear friend. Uh, I've eaten a lot of great meals at his house while his kids clung on to me. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so I love it, but... Alas, let's get this show kicked off the way we always do with a top three, top three. And let me know where you're from. Let me know where you're calling in from as well. Put that in the comments just so I know so I can shout you out. So top three, top three, a little bit different this year. I didn't take your recommendations or this year. By this year, I mean this week. I just came up with my own thing. So top three, top three, let's go. Number one, top three books I will read so that I can be better. Top three word books that I will read so that I can be better. First off, number one is a classic book. If you are just entering the journey, if you are just entering the conversation that's been happening for a while uh, about race relations and about your own identity and whatnot, there's a really popular book that I've never read and I need to read. It's literally called Why Do All the Black People Sit Together in the Cafeteria? It's by Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum and uh, and so these are books that I will read. Thank you, Scott, uh, that I will read. These are not books that I have read. They're books that I need to read and I'm excited to read. So first off, why do all the black people sit together in the cafeteria? Number two is White Fragility. White Fragility. It is by Robin D'Angelo. It's by Robin D'Angelo. Brittany, you have read that book. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate it. So White Fragility by, uh, by Robin D'Angelo is a book that is on my now must read list. And last but not least, uh, not least is, uh, is White Like Me. It's by a gentleman by the name of Tim Wise. I want to hear some different perspectives. Um, and so uh, so Tim Wise wrote a book. I've, heard, I've got to hear him speak. He is a powerful speaker, uh, but I'm excited to read his book, White Like Me. So again, those three books that I will now read, I encourage you to, as well if you have not, are Why Do All the Black People Sit Together in the Cafeteria, White Fragility, and White Like Me. I love it. Dan Fail wants to do some accountability reading. I'm into that, brother. Let's buy these books from some black-owned bookstores, and let's go. I got a list. Happy to send it to you if you'd like. Next up, <clears throat> next up, the top three recent albums by black people that you should listen to. The top three recent albums by black people that you should listen to given our times right now particularly. Number one, I'm a huge fan of anything by Killer Mike. Uh, and Run the Jewels, uh, Run the Jewels has put, been putting out some really powerful work lately. They just came out with Run the Jewels 4 or RTJ4 um, and incredible hip hop uh, with some really candid storytelling. I'm sure you've seen Killer Mike uh, do a number of things on uh, a number of things on, on TV. He's been interviewed a number of times. He's an outrageous speaker. Uh, 
Uh, there's part of me that wishes he would change his name, but that's only because I know that white fragility is real and not everybody is ready to talk to somebody named Killer Mike. Uh, but, uh, but I also respect the hell out of him for that being his name. Uh, I just think that his message is powerful. And if you're immediately turned off by him, that's a shame because he's got really cool things to say. Uh, next. Beyonce's Lemonade. In particular, in particular with Beyonce's Lemonade, I would encourage you to watch the live performance of it. It is beautiful black art at its finest, and I cannot recommend it enough. It is powerful. Uh, give me a drum line any day, but more importantly, give me lyrics that make me think, that make me think about who I am and the experiences of other people any day. Beyonce's Lemonade. Uh, and last but not least is Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly is an outrageous album. Outrageous album that definitely illuminated a lot of things for me. I think it will for you. If you don't like hip-hop, I encourage you to listen to it anyway because the words are what matter. Um, the words are what matter. Uh, and so make sure that you check some of those out. They're really powerful. And friends, those are recent albums. Like those are all came out within the last four, four years, maybe something like that, four or five years. Um, I'm not entirely sure when To Pimp a Butterfly came out, maybe six years ago. But either way, um, we could go all the way back. We could go all the way back to important artists, your Marvin Gaye, Richie Havens, Nina Simone, right? And we could listen to songs about strange fruit, and understand what exactly she was talking about. And, and so there's a lot of incredible artists that have been delivering messages to us that we've been bobbing our heads to and turning up in our cars, but we haven't necessarily been paying attention to the lyrics. And I say we during this entire conversation because that is also something that I know I do. I love hip-hop's energy. I don't always pay attention to the lyrics, um, and that's on me. Top three, top three, that's two. Last one, top three, top three. The top three worst responses. The top three worst responses you can say to the protests. Here we go. Number three uh, is, I feel bad for Target. <laughs> I feel I just feel bad for Target. Uh, Target's going to be all right, y'all. They're going to be just fine. Trust and believe. Uh, trust and believe that. Next, the top three. Next, the next worst thing you could say is I support good cops. I support good cops. Here's the thing, friends. I also support good cops. Okay. I support good people doing the right thing. That's what I support, right? And so a lot of people will say, I support good cops. Let us be careful at how we are defining good cop because I have a lot of great cops in my family that did the right thing time and time again, as far as I know, because those are the stories that have been passed on to me. I don't know if I've heard them all, but what I would say is that a good cop, a good cop, yes, ideally, um, is not racist. A good cop has been through some sort of social justice training, has been through a repeated uh, awareness training so they can own who they are, so they know how they can show up into different spaces. A good cop, is also someone who stops their brother or sister on the force from going too far. And that is something that I don't think we currently train cops on. And so uh, there's a lot of really powerful stuff. I know the NAACP has been really working on a lot of that kind of stuff and making sure that we are getting these police records to be more public so that we know who's got complaints against them and who doesn't. Uh, those are really powerful objects. Uh, um, <clears throat> uh, directions that the NAACP is trying to move in. So those are my top uh, top two. And the third one, the worst thing that you can say uh, to uh, response to the protest is all lives matter. All lives matter. Let's get this out on the table right now. You're right. 
All lives do matter. Congratulations. We're all beautiful snowflakes in this world, in this snow globe of happiness. And that's lovely, right? That is lovely. But the fact of the matter is the analogy that's been going around that I love, the analogy that I love that's going around is if one house is on fire on the block, you don't, (laughs) the fire trucks don't show up to every house on the block and douse them all with water my friends. Okay. So let us thinking about what we mean when we say all lives matter. It is insensitive, inappropriate, and it is not, it is just, it's just a little bit tone deaf right now. You've got to see a little bit bigger and a little bit deeper. My friends, those are tonight's top three top three. I'm curious, have you read any books? Have you read any books that you have really loved? If so, I'd love to hear some of your book recommendations. If there is an artist or an album that sticks out to you that's like, hey, I think people should listen to this album because it made me think a little bit. I encourage you, please put that in the comments, put that in the show notes, put that, let me know in the, in, in a review or something like that. What are some ideas that you have that other people can do right now to continue to learn? Put them in the comments. Comments, please. I'd love to hear them uh, just because I think it would be really powerful. Be really powerful. So, thank you, my friends. I appreciate you tuning in for tonight's top three, top three. Let's get into tonight's episode. My guest tonight is the one and only Rick Daniels. Rick and I have known each other for a number of years, approximately 10, actually, I believe. He may, he may correct me on that. It's around 10, nine or 10 years is how long we have known each other. We met each other on a bus, and uh, we're going to get into that story in a minute. But he is an incredible individual, a proud brother of Alpha, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. He is a uh, ice cold to the core. Um, he is indeed uh, an, an incredible uh, lyricist when it comes to being on stage, the way that he makes people think, the way that he makes people dream. But most importantly, in my eyes, and the thing that I respect the most about him is the way that he parents and the way that he parents his children with his, his incredible wife, Erica. Um, and, uh, and we're going to talk about that tonight, y'all. Please do me a favor. Start clapping out right now. Do a slow clap at home for the one and only Rick Daniels. Here we go. Rick, come through. What's good, man? What's happening, my brother? That was a that was an amazing introduction, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't read bios anymore, man. Coming straight from the heart. You're not the you sent me one. <laughs> yeah, hey, but you know, we we done been in the game for so long together. We, we know each other's by already, you know, exactly. so, it's, so it's all good, man. But exactly. but thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, hello to everybody who's uh, who's streamed in. Exactly, exactly. Rick, I'm so excited that we're together. The story is that we met on a bus, man. Um, <clears throat> we and, did. And we met at a bus. And I love the way you talk about this, man. We met at a bus because we were both going somewhere. Tell, 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 tell the people more about that. Uh, so James and I, um, I used to be... Uh, assigned to an agency called Campus Speak, uh, which um, I'm not sure, you know, where they are in the marketplace now, but at the time they were the number one agency for campus speakers. And um, it was like for speakers who were trying to get into the game at the time, it was like signing a deal. You know, it was like, (laughs) you know, signing to the hottest label at the time. And uh, we were supposed to fly down to Denver for a training. um, And I flew down to Denver. And when I got off the plane, um, I got onto the shuttle bus to the hotel. And I look across, you know, everybody gets on the shuttle bus and I'm not really paying attention. And I look up and I see this guy on with purple socks. I think he had on purple socks. 
Yeah, I got a brand. I got a brand. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So I don't exactly remember what happened, but I think you had on something Iota Phi Theta as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't help it. I'm like, yo, Iota? And I think we just made the connection from that point. And I kind of looked at you and you looked at me and was like, what? You looking at me like that because I'm white? <laughs> <laughs> and we just hit it off from there. Um, and the, the reason why I feel like... Um, the rest, as they say, is history. And the reason why I feel like that's so special is because um, I say that we met. The re- only reason we met is because we were headed somewhere. We were going somewhere. You know, we didn't meet, you know, in, in middle school and become friends on the playground. We didn't bump into each other in, the, in a coffee line and end up having a good conversation that lasted, you know, whatever, how many years. Yeah. The only reason we got together that day is because you and I were headed, you know, somewhere trying to take this thing to the next level. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for you. I appreciate you. You're my brother. You know, I love you very much. And, um, you know, you, you have eaten some good meals at the crib, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that you've, uh, that my kids know you and my family knows you. And, um, you know, I, I said, uh, I said a long time ago when, uh, our careers were in the same area, but sort of headed in a different direction, you know, um, it, it, our friendship is stronger than an agency. Um, it's stronger than a, than a career choice. It's stronger than, than anything. You know, the bond that we have are like sequoia roots. You know what I'm saying? The sequoia tree has roots that connect. All the sequoia trees are connected to each other through their roots, yes. no matter where they are. And I feel like no matter where you and I go, our sequoia roots are always connected. So I'm grateful to be here. And I, I truly appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak to the people, bro. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, what a beautiful analogy with the sequoias. Uh, here's why I also love that is because sequoias are the biggest and baddest trees out there, man. And that's uh, we yeah, try that's to, right. We try to yeah. be that as well. Um, and yeah, uh, word up. But yeah, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Er- Erica just chimed in and she said, "Them yams, though." Uh, you was <laughs> listening to the show. Yeah, I don't. It's she funny them yams up. That it, macaroni and cheese make you smack your mama. It was so. Um, it was yeah, so it's good. only a few people know what that is. It make you it, smack your mama. But thank you for chiming in, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were uh, they were stupid good. Here's the thing: I came to the house. I came to the house, and and, and I'll be honest with you, man. I don't. I'd never had yams that I liked before. No offense to my aunt Fern if she's listening, um, but uh, <laughs> but but I don't I don't know I don't I don't know what your your partner put in there, uh, but they were they were incredible, and I I got thirds I believe not even seconds I went for thirds so yeah but but here's the thing that I love brother is, is coming to your house coming to your house Rick is family, um, it is immediately family the way that your kids. Uh, your kids immediately embraced me. And whether that's because, you know, you read them my bio before I walked in um, or, or, or whatever, whatever it was, but like um, your kids immediately were, you know, very warm, hugging me, you know, showing me things like, you got to come see the basement um, and uh, <laughs> bringing me down. And, uh, and, and the environment that you and, and your wife have created at the home is, is one that I hope to be able to emulate as a father one day. Um, it is, uh, it Word. is incredible. I, union. That, I know you know, your last name is Daniels and I know you all refer to yourselves as a tribe called Daniels, uh, yeah. this tribe called quest reference. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and so, uh, yeah, I, I love it, man. I, I love it. When you think, Oh, there you go. We got the tattoo. Is that it's tribe? tribe. Called... <laughs> it's a tribe. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, uh, so, so tell me, man, 
in your in general in general just just be, we'll dive we'll dive into what's going on today in just in just a second let's 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 do a beach entry um, <laughs> um in general when it comes to parenting what is a what is the philosophy that you have in your home that you and erica you know have have talked about i mean like this is what we believe and how we believe we should raise our kids and and whatnot how, what kind of conversations do y'all have as as a family as a team unit um well, first of all, I appreciate you asking me that. Um, I appreciate those observations as well. I didn't read my kids your bio. Um, I just told them that you can't, I, I can't wait for you all to meet Uncle James. Um, I have to say that I am, I thank God for my wife. I really do, man. And I, I, I try not to talk about it too much because I get emotional, but um, she's my heir. You know, um, I, I say often that she is Coretta. She's Betty. She is Michelle. She's all of them. You know, uh, she's every single one of them. And um, and I uh, I am grateful for the woman that she is and, and the manner in which she mothers our kids and, and, the, and the wife that she is to me. Um, I really um, um, I, I think that I credit I credit, um, you know, our we, we try to have a, a spiritual presence in our house, you know, at all times. Uh, one of the things that my, my uh, I grew up a pastor's kid and um, PK's in the house. If, if you're in the house, stand up. Um, <laughs> my parents would always we would always gather for prayer um, before uh, school. You know, anytime that we left the house, particularly for school, we would gather for prayer. And, and it wouldn't you know be very long, but it would just be a short prayer where we gathered together. Everybody took a day and everybody said a prayer. And that's something that I've taken with me. As a matter of fact, I believe you you prayed with us, you know, uh, before we left out uh, yeah. for school yeah, uh, one particular day. And, um, you know, for me, um, it's all about understanding, you know, who God is in our lives and, um, you know, how we are are, are blessed. Um, but also, um, we are, are unapologetically black in my house, you know, and we raise our kids to be proud of their blackness. We raise our kids to understand the realities of this world. And we also raise them to understand the unique and complex uh, contributions uh, that we have made and continue to make to this world um, and how we uh, should should have love for everyone and understand the, the difference uh, uh, and different struggles that everyone endures, uh, but that it's okay to be proud of your blackness. And I think that that uh, provides a certain level of love in our house um, that we uh, that we live on. We live on love. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? We, we thrive on love. On love. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, both of us, uh, my wife and I, um, you know, we uh, we don't play with our kids. You know, we we don't play in this house. You know, there are there there, there are there is structure. Uh, but at the same time, we love our kids enough. Um, to, to talk with them and walk with them and, and understand that they are individuals and human beings um, and not just our kids, our children, uh, but they're individuals. And we also uh, believe in legacy. You know, everything we do is, uh, is uh, to, to establish a legacy so that their generations, three and four generations down, um, you know, will be able to see the fruits of our labor. So I think all of that, you know, mixes to, um, to the point where um, you know, we uh, we raise them in, in such a way to where they love the Lord, they love themselves, and they understand the power of love in one central space. Yeah. 
Incredible, man. And now I know you say you don't play with your kids, but I also know that you take your son to school on the basketball court every once in a while. Um, so you know, you, you play <laughs> he with him. Other... School. You take him to school. Oh, he is. Okay. He's taking me to school I now. Want, I don't want to bring that up. I was there a while. Nah, ago. he's a bad boy. I'm gonna give him all the credit in the world. I think I still got a little muscle on him, so I can uh-huh. take it to the hole on him. But um, I told him, you know, I, I don't. I'm not raising you to be a ball player. I'm raising you to be a man. Mm-hmm. I want you to learn about the game of life through the game of basketball. But I also want you to understand that I'm not raising you to go to, a, to go to the league or play for anybody's team. I tell them all the time, I'd rather you own a team than just be on a team. Okay? I'd rather, I'd rather you be the you owner. Own a team instead of just, just being be on a team. team. Yep. Okay? See, because listen, when you're the owner, you can break your leg, you can tear your ACL and come to work tomorrow. Yeah. You still when you're a player, money. you can't do that. You can tear <laughs> your ACL and your whole career might be over. But when you yeah. own the team, you can you can limp your way to work and still own the team. Mm-hmm. And so I've always tried to uh, help him to understand the power of his mind um, and how that extends on the basketball court, but also beyond the basketball court as well. Um, but I'm, I'm still whipping him. But uh, he he's uh, he's he's incrementally better at this point, which is great. That's I've always told him I wanted you to be a better man than me at every stage in life. So when I, when you're 16, I want you to be a better 16 year old than I was. I want you to think better than I did. I want you to get better grades than I did. When you're 34, like I am, I want you to be a better 34 year old than I was at the time. Yeah. I want him to go further than I did in every aspect of life. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, I know my dad. My dad said similar things to me about uh, uh, the game of golf. As he he didn't he never wanted me to beat him, but he was excited when I did, uh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and now and uh, and I used to beat him for a long time, and then I, then I stopped playing as much. So now he beats me, but I don't want to talk about it. Um, so uh, <laughs> uh, my dad my dad's out here about to be about to be shooting his age on the golf course, which is uh, incredible. Um, so, Shout out but, to pops. Exactly. Exactly. So a poet, the poet and the golfer and a great father. Um, um, so I love what you were saying about the way you know, we talk about legacy. We talk about you know, you'd be proud of your blackness, but uh, be proud of your blackness and uh, show love to everyone, right? Like these things are not mutually exclusive ideas. Uh, and, uh, and I think that is beautiful the way that you impart that into your children. I'm curious for you, uh, fast forwarding to, uh, to today, um, I would be curious to hear like when, and a little bit of the past as well. When you were coming up, do you remember the lessons that your parents taught you about being black? Um, and and has has the language shifted uh, to how you now talk about your children about being black? I would be curious to to hear that. Is is there a shift? Is it similar? Uh, yeah, speak on that for a little bit, man. Um, that's a good. That's a great question. Um, I remember an overwhelming sense of pride growing up. Um, I credit that mostly to to both my parents, but mostly to my father, Rick Daniels, um, who was always incredibly proud and, um, you know, grew up. He was born in the 50s. So, of course, he grew up in a time um, where, you know, the collective black consciousness was expanding, you know, uh, such a great deal through all forms. Um, and I can remember a, a specifically, um, you know, I asked this question um, in a speech once, I've never really set out, you know, said in any other forum, but um, there, there's a movie out there called Brown Sugar, um, which is a, a love story that's centered around uh, hip hop. And the movie opens up with a question 
Um, and uh, the, the one of the leading characters, Sanaa Lathan, uh, whose name is Sid Shaw, she's a journalist. And every time she interviews someone, she asks, when did you fall in love with hip hop? And so um, the question that I ask uh, many black folks out there is, when did you fall in love with their blackness? Mm. When did you fall in love with who you are? Malcolm X uh, had a speech called, Who Taught You to Hate Yourself? And uh, his entire premise was uh, the hate that we have in our, uh, the hate that we have for ourselves is, is a learned behavior. So who taught you to hate yourself? Who taught you to hate your own kind? And I, I kind of try to flip that question and ask, um, when did you fall in love with your blackness? When did you fall in love with yourself? Uh, when did you fall in love um, with, uh, with what your blackness means? And I can remember um, I, the moment that I fell in love with my blackness, and that was during the Million Man March. Um, my, my, my dad was always, uh, we were, we grew up in a very pro-black household, um, that, that embraced the beauty of blackness, but on the million man March, my father, um, wanted to go to the March, but he was a pastor. So he decided to stay in Milwaukee and, uh, have a day of prayer it was a day of atonement. And I can remember coming down to the church, um, to, uh, to have prayer with, with the other, with the other members, um, uh, particularly we had a lot of, a lot of men at the church at the time. And, um, the, when I was praying next to my dad, we were all on our knees in a circle praying and he was holding my hand so tight. I'll never forget the grip he had on my hand at that time. And that was the moment I fell in love with my blackness. That was the moment I knew that there was a purpose to this. That was the moment I knew, um, even at 10 years old, that there was more to this than just culture. Um, and uh, from that from that point, um, I, I began to really, you know, understand the power of uh, uh, the power of, um, you know, what it meant to, to be in love with myself. Um, and, and I think that um, that upbringing really, uh, really helped to shape who I am. It helped to shape my identity. Yeah. Um, and then later on, it, it helped me to understand um, how how powerful it is to love yourself and also love others. You know, a lot of times um, people don't understand that we are capable, black people are capable of loving ourselves and loving everybody else. Just I, to, to be pro-black isn't to be anti-white or anti-anything else. I could, I'm capable of loving me and loving you. Um, and, and that's why uh, the, the response, the All Lives Matter response shouldn't be a rebuttal to Black Lives Matter. Um, it should be an extension to Black Lives Matter, mm. but it should be sequential. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, uh, we, we have to realize, and Dr. King said this in many ways, we have to realize, in order for us to realize the true promises of America, we have to give uh, the Black race what we've deprived it of for so many years. And so um, to, to everyone out there who, who strongly believes in the All Lives Matter principle, as you mentioned before, it's okay to believe that, but not as a counterpoint to Black Lives Matter, to an extension to Black Lives Matter, um, and understanding uh, that it's okay for me to love my Blackness and love you. I am physically, emotionally, and spiritually capable of loving myself. <laughs> Turns out we're pretty complex beings. <laughs> yeah, right. I can walk and chew gum. Yeah, right. <laughs> you understand know what I'm saying? I'm physically yes. capable of loving myself and loving you at the same time. Yeah. Um, but in order for me to love you, I don't have to compromise the humanity of my people. Right. I don't have to say it's okay for a person to get choked out on television in order for me to love you. Mm -hmm. I can say that it's okay for that. I can say that it's not okay for that to happen. And that we should seek justice for those and still love everyone else at the same time. Um, and I think that's what my upbringing, uh, upbringing taught me. Yeah. 
that is powerful. Your, uh, <clears throat> your, the story about your father, I've never heard that before. Um, and, and, and the grip that, uh, that he had and that you'll never, you'll never forget the intensity of that grip. Uh, that is, um, that is so powerful. And, I, I, I'm not, I'm, I got a little welled up. I'm glad you, I'm glad you moved on from that. Cause if you kept going deeper, it would have gotten ugly over here. Uh, and I'm just not ready to cry yet. I've been crying enough. Um, but, uh, but still, uh, but still that, that's such a powerful moment of when did you, when did you fall in love with your blackness? So your children, uh, your children are, uh, <clears throat> your children are Erica, Erica put it in here somewhere. Your ch- children are 14, nine, seven, and five. Yeah. Um, it's a so how old, uh, how old were, how old were you, um, at, you know, when you're, when that happened, when you were, how old did you say you were? I was 10. You were 10. Okay. Yep. And so in your children's journeys right now into falling in love with their blackness, as you mentioned, you and you and Erica talk a lot about it, right? Um, where do you think your children are? And it's gotta be interesting to watch them each, uh, influence each other uh, while you also influence them and how they start to fall in love with their, with their blackness, um, especially to the horrific counterpoints of, of media of, uh, and things like that. Talk a little bit about that. I would just be curious to hear, like, are you watching them each become more proud of their blackness at, at different rates yeah. at different times? Is that, is that something that happens? Is 10 a typical time where that happens? You know, I'd, yeah. Well, I think um, that's a great question. I think that there are um, there's a there's a moment where you fall in love with your blackness, but then there are continuous moments over the years where you can where you continue to fall deeper in love mm-hmm. um, and become more and more conscious in a way. For me, I think the second stage happened when I was in college. For my children, um, I talk about my my oldest son, well, my son who's my oldest, and my oldest daughter, Madison. I think the other two are still developing, yeah. uh, but I'm going to talk about those two specifically now. Um, uh, Christian is, uh, he's an incredible young man. He's in, he's incredibly intelligent. He's motivated. He's smart. You go through your own little 14 year old stuff with him. Um, but for the most part, he is a very strong minded, strong willed young man, uh, very competitive as well. And um, it wasn't until this this his past birthday that I realized how woke he really was mm. and how much he's been absorbing, um, you know, all of the different things that we've tried to walk him through, um, you know, over the years. So each year, uh, Christian and I do a goal setting exercise. And so, you know how you have uh, your general performance reviews on your job. Yeah. Me and Christian do sort of a performance review every year on his birthday. So some around sometime in the month of August, maybe not on his birthday. His birthday is August the cake, right? Like right before um, you I'll give take him the him cake. Out to eat. <laughs> right. Right before you give <laughs> him the cake, you're like, hang uh, on, I, no. you got to get your review first. We're going to see how big of a slice of cake you're getting this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Keep going. I Keep always on. take him out. I always take him out and uh, we have a conversation and we go over his goals from the previous year and then talk about the goals that he'd like to f- see happen and the action steps he needs to take uh, for the year before. And so uh, the year coming. And so I always ask him, uh, what do you want out of year 14? This is year 14. This is the 14th year of your life. What do you want out of this year? What do you want to see happen? Um, and this year, um, our conversation was, a lot more expanded. It was much deeper because there's something about that year 14. Emmett Till was killed at 14. Mm. 
Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, it's one thing to talk to your kid about goal setting when he's eight and nine. Um, but when he's 14, um, he's starting to see the world differently and the world is starting to respond to him differently. He's no longer the cute little baby boy. Yeah. Now he's a physical threat. He's taller. He's bigger. You know, he got the hair. He's 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 a he's a bigger physical threat now. Yeah. And so I've tried to have uh, very conscious conversations with them. And um, I asked him this year. Um, I had a number of questions, a number of subjects to talk about with him this year. And I asked him, what does it mean to be black to you? And his answers, which I won't go into because I feel like they were really personal, but um, his answers just blew me away. And it helped me to understand that he has been listening. He has been taking things in and he still has a lot to learn and a long way to go. But there was a certain pride there that I didn't know was as deep as it was. Um, and it was really emotional for me because it was like, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think he's starting to get it a little bit. Wow. Um, and so uh, I'm always uh, interested in what he has to say because I think he has great opinions. Um, and um, this this summer during or this time during quarantine, we started a father-son movie night series. Um, I wanted him to watch all of the movies uh, that had an impact on me growing up. So we started off with He Got Game. And then next is, next is uh, and, you know, he loves to play ball. So, yeah. it, he, you know, I, we had an in-depth discussion about that afterwards, yeah, yeah. right? Yep. Um, you know, in a relationship with his father and all those different things that took place. Uh, next is Boys in the Hood, Malcolm X, 13th, the documentary, um, Above the Rim. You know what I'm saying? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Wood. Um, you know, these are classic color purple. These are classic black films that shape my identity that I want him to at least see. Even if he doesn't like, even if they don't become his favorite movies, at least you can say you saw it. Because, though, I do believe in a black card. If you ain't seen Color Purple, I need to see that car. I need to see that car, bro. Like, <laughs> you ain't seen Boys in the Hood. I, I need to see that car. And so there's a part of me that's like training him. Um, to understand the power of the of his blackness within these films, but also because of the many lessons that exist. Um, so, you know, I, I um, I'm very proud of him and very proud of who he's becoming and the young man that he is, but also, um, un, you know, him developing an understanding. Um, my oldest daughter, Madison, is real woke. Um, she's almost a little too woke to be nine. <laughs> so you got to watch it you know? <laughs> uh, because she's a real raise the fist young woman. But I can remember one particular time um, I was watching the documentary 13th uh, by Avery DuVernay and they were showing um, and Friday. OK, I see you, Raven. Are we, we're going to show <laughs> we're showing the first Friday. Um, and I can remember uh, I was watching 13th by myself and um, um, there was a scene um, during the civil rights movement where um, white people, not the police, but just general white citizens were assaulting a black man uh, who was protesting and he wasn't fighting back. And my old, my daughter Madison happened to walk in the room at this time and she looked at the TV and she just became disgusted. She was like, oh, come on. What did he do? What did he do? Why are they doing that to him? Wait a minute. Why isn't he fighting back? What's, what's happening here? And so I had to pause the movie because she was really she was really fired up about this. And I had to pause the movie and um, try to have a conversation with her as best as I could with the nine-year-old about racism and uh, the physicality of racism. Um, and uh, that's something that I feel like we shouldn't wait too long to teach our kids. Um, we have found a way to teach our children about all of the horrific things that America 
all of the heroic things that America has done in the name of freedom. We found a way to teach them about war. We found a way to teach them about um, uh, 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 colonialism. We found a way to teach them about all of the great things about America. Um, uh, we found a way to spoon feed that to them. Um, we need to spoon feed them about the horrific things too. The kids can't just grow up thinking that America is this wonderful place of freedom and that everything that America Americans have done is in the name of freedom. And it's this all of this thing. I always say that educationally, um, um, America has done a good job of teaching us about the heroic details of our history, but not the horrific details of our history. Mm -hmm. So we'll teach you about the Civil War, but we won't tell you it was about slavery. It was about upholding the institution of slavery. We'll teach you it was about valor and about, you know, preserving the, the ideas of America. But what we won't tell you about the Declaration of, of Independence is that there was there, people were enslaved. Over, over four million people were enslaved at the time that that document was written. Right. And so I think that if we really want to raise our children in the next generation um, to uh, to be more active, to be more conscious, to be more empathetic, we can't just teach them that all people are great and all lives matter. We yeah. must teach them about the realities of the history of this nation. And we have to teach them that in the same way that we've taught them about all the other things. If we got to write children's books about slavery, we should write those. If we got to write children's books about uh, colonialism, we need to write that because we need to figure out a way to teach them the history now before they learn about it after it's too late. Yeah. We are all too often exposed to our history after seeing a video like the one we saw last week mm -hmm. when we really should be learning that shit in school. Accurate. Yes, I completely agree. And especially as I think about the way I was uh, the way I was brought up and taught in my school. Now, I grew up in a town that was uh, incredibly white, impeccably white. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, if, if, I've said before, if, if you saw five black people walking together in my town, you thought it was a movement. And uh, like you just like it just it just wasn't, it wasn't it. Right. Um, like that. Uh, and so. Um, so it's also interesting because, you know, the way the history books that I was taught with, I didn't realize only taught me a section, a section of the curriculum, right? They didn't teach right. me the whole curriculum. Like, like, I mean, right. you know, and, 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 and most of the curriculum had white saviors, right? Like, thank God for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, thank God for, and, and, you know, and, and a lot of white saviorism in it as well. Um, and it's so interesting that that is a continuous story that I, that I was taught yet. I wasn't taught about other major things that were happening, you know, within arm's reach of my hometown, right? The Ku Klux Klan, one of its biggest hubs uh, was was on Long Island, New York, where I grew up. I didn't learn mm. about that till my 20s. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, and I mean, you know about the white. So flag. that's 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's 20 years. Yep. You know, like we have to put that into the context of time, into the context of time. That's 20 years. 20 years. 20 some odd. Now, how old were you? 28, you said? Uh, yeah, so you're mid twenties. Yeah, mid twenties. Let's just say twenty five. That's yep. twenty five years. It's a quarter of a century before yep. you realize what was right in your backyard. Yep. That's how racism works. And it's crazy because also on top of that, the you know that's that's then twenty five years of unlearning I have to do. Yeah, if, right, if I right, put right. the if I choose to put the work in, right? right? Um, and and. On my good days, I did. On my bad days, I didn't. And that's that. You know, that is what it is. I'll I'll own my own stuff here. But, uh, word, but word. it is so. Uh, it's it's incredible because you know I was taught these major hallmark moments uh, that happened in history, but I was taught about them like they were in the past, 
right? Like I went to school, right. I'm born and raised in Long Island, New York. I went to school in the South. Um, and, and I was taught that the South is racist. Um, and, and, but I was never taught that the North is racist. Uh, and I went to the South and learned that the North is still racist also. You know what I mean? Like, mm, like it's not like the right. North had figured it out. Like, thank God for the civil war where we got to separate the racists and non-racist. Now turns out that's not how that, that happened. Um, and it's, it's, but I learned about the hidden ways that racism is happening. Uh, like, you know, the, the canceling of bus routes, uh, and, uh, you know, the white flight and the way that people are, who's, who's getting loans, yep. who's not getting loans. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, like the, all that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. The way property taxes work and how those funds, uh, then fund the schools that are in those, that are in those counties, towns. Um, and, and no wonder schools have different qualities and, you know, and stuff like that. Like it, those are things that I wasn't taught in the moment. I was taught that in the racist South. Um, and, and I'm not going to say the South is clean. I'm saying racism everywhere. Let's make sure what, what everybody's hearing right now. Um, but it's so fascinating when I think about what I learned, or really what I didn't learn. Um, like there's a whole curriculum out there that people haven't even gotten the cliff notes version of. They've gotten the, the beautiful tip of the iceberg. Uh, and that's, and that's about it. Uh, they have no yeah, idea absolutely. what's going on below the surface because what's below the surface is, uh, is hard to see and it's uncomfortable and people don't like being uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it, it so, it's interesting. And I guess, so let's, let's stay on this topic for a second in a slightly different way. Uh, you, uh, I'm white. I don't know if you noticed that yet. I'm not sure. You know, I can't, tell. this is good lighting, but, uh, come on. Uh, <laughs> but still, uh, so, uh, I noticed on the bus when I saw the Iota Phi Theta, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's it. You're it's, Oh, this man's in a historically black fraternity. Do you think he borrowed that shirt from somebody? Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, uh, no, nope, nah, but you know, Iota's man, y'all, y'all got Iota's get respect for, uh, for for the way that they uh, they pushed through through the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. you know the time in which I were founded. I, I know you know where the Iota's fall on the divine nine, but the time in which I was founded, uh, y'all get respect for for being founded around the principles of civil rights. Yeah, right. I rock right with that. Of it, September nineteenth, nineteen sixty three. Yeah, uh, I rock with that. So so uh, so I have a white family. A lot of my a lot of the viewers right now probably identify as white. Um, I would be curious. Uh, I had a conversation today actually with my nephews and one of my nephews recently got on Instagram. He just turned 13. I think for his birthday present, they allowed him to get on Instagram. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's cheap. That was smart. Um, but, yeah. uh, but still, uh, <laughs> but still, um, uh, it, it's interesting because he kind of out of the blue on FaceTime today after we were talking about riding bikes and playing baseball in the backyard and his birthday just happened. How was that? What did he get? Um, you know, he's like, how are the, he's like, what's happening with the protests? And, and I was like, what? I was like, well, before I knew his parents were like, I can only see him and his brother on the screen. His brother's a little bit younger than him. I can only see them on the screen. And, uh, first off, I love that he asked. Um, but I also thought to myself, I don't know what you're being taught at home right now. Now mm -hmm. I love my brothers. I know, I know where my brothers fall. They are on the right side of history, but at this, but I don't know what conversations they've had right now. You know what I mean? Like, and so, uh, so with that being said, I was like, I flipped it back on him. I said, well, you tell me, you know, what, do you know what happened? Um, and, and, uh, first off, my, my one nephew is a lot younger said, he th he's like, I think a, a firefighter, uh, was, 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 
uh, we killed so and it was like all right aiden i'm gonna cut you off brother um <laughs> but aiden, aiden's much younger and so i don't again like we talk about like you know uh the awareness like i pre- appreciate you trying um and uh <laughs> but but then i asked my my older nephew um and um and uh he said he said uh he's like cops cops killed a, a black man in minneapolis and I said, you're right. The police did kill. They murdered a black man in, in Minneapolis. Mm. And so mm. it was a powerful moment. And I said, you know, how did you learn about that? Have you had conversation with your parents? And he said, well, I saw it from your Instagram, Uncle James. And then I was like, oh, mm. shoot, I've, I've been posting some <laughs> I've been posting some language. Uh, maybe I need to check what I'm posting. But uh, but more importantly, but more importantly, I loved that my nephew used that as a catalyst to ask right. his parents what's going on. Um, and, and his parents showed up for that conversation in a really beautiful way, um, in a really powerful way and didn't beat around the bus, didn't, didn't dis- Disneyland the conversation. So mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear, uh, I'd be curious to hear for you, uh, and, and I don't even know if this is the right way to ask this, but, uh, but stick with me and free flow to reframe the question. Um, but what advice do you have to individuals that are talking to their children or have started the conversation with their children or continuing the conversation with their children? Um, what advice do you have, particularly for, for white parents right now or parent, um, in the conversations that uh, they could be having? Because you and I both know that this is when those seeds get planted, mm. right? Like, like it was shown to me, it was shown to me at 25 that I didn't see the whole picture, mm-hmm. right? Like, so, but like my nephew's having that conversation at 13, that's an incredible moment to start to be able to think about racism. What do I look like? What does that matter? Why was this wrong? Um, you know, that's, that's 13 years of unlearning as opposed to 25 or 28. Um, and so, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. And, and I guess suggestions that you have, and maybe they even could be based with the way that you talk to your children about some of it as well. I know it is different, uh, but I don't, I wonder if there are parallels. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know what advice I would have for white parents because I've only known how to speak to my kids as a black man mm-hmm. and as a black parent. What I will say is this. Um, you're doing yourself a disservice if you choose to hide this from them yep. in any way. Talking to your kids about the realities of our racialized society in my opinion, is just as important as teaching them about financial literacy. Mm. It's just as important as teaching them how to drive. It's just as important as teaching them how to bathe themselves and clothe themselves. Um, if you didn't teach your child how to bathe themselves, they would stink, right? Like they would stink. <laughs> if you didn't teach your children how to brush their teeth, they wouldn't brush them properly. I know because we allow our kids to brush their teeth on certain days. <laughs> And it is reflective of how we teach them. And sometimes we got to go back and go behind them. And, and you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes you can just tell some days they do a really good job. Some days we have to be parents and go back and brush your teeth. Some days it's like, I'm brushing your teeth all week. I don't care if you're nine. Like, I'm brushing your teeth this week. Um, I think, uh, and this is not a direct correlation, but I think, um, you know, you can use that as an analogy for how we talk to our kids about societal issues. If you don't talk to them about it, then mentally they will stink. Mentally, they will reflect the fact that they've never been taught how to really deal with societal issues. 
Um, when you see children who do not know how to bathe themselves and who, who do not know how to, uh, uh, who do not understand how, as I mentioned before, financial literacy, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's because it's the way we've been taught. And I think that, um, or what we haven't been taught rather. And I think the same can be said for how we, you know, work through issues with society. Um, it's because we haven't been taught or the way in which we've been taught. You mentioned before, this is where the seeds get planted. I would also add to that and say that this is also where um, um, seeds can become uprooted because a, a lot of times children, you know, we know that children aren't born with these ideologies, they're learned behaviors. And a lot of times kids really don't know the difference and they don't get the difference. And um, you may have children who sort of organically have an inclusive mindset, but then they're up, their parents uproot that and say, well, you know, it, the, black people really shouldn't be looting right now. And that's another seed that's planted. So, so as you mentioned before, that it, it's not just the seed that's planted, yeah. but it's oftentimes what's uprooted and then, and then, re, and then the seeds are replanted after that. Right. Um, so that I think it's that, important. That idea that people are taught to hate, right? We're born. Yes, you're, you're not born hating. You're taught to hate. Absolutely. That's the uprooting Absolutely. and the planting of hatred. Yes, I love that. Keep and I would hard. say, I, I think I think people are taught to see. I, I think people are taught to see the other. Mm. We otherize our kids, which then manifests itself into hate. I don't think a lot of kids are taught to hate. I don't think their parents literally plant the seeds of hate and say we need to hate these individuals. But what I think does happen is um, we decide to otherize the communities and say that those are the other folks over there who don't really deserve compassion, who don't really deserve for us to care about them. Turn the channel. That's how we otherize individual experiences, which then turns into hate because we fear and hate what we don't understand. Yeah. Um, now, conversely, of course, there are parents who do teach hate. So I'm not going to act like that doesn't happen. Um, there are parents who do teach hate. There are parents who do teach white supremacy, who do, te who do teach superiority um, yes. from a gender perspective. There are parents who uh, foster toxic masculinity and things of that nature. Um, but I don't think that's true for every case. I think mm -hmm. in some case we plant seeds of what we've always taught, been taught or believed, and that turns into hate. So what I would say um, to white parents, um, I think it starts with you, not your kids. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times we're conditioned to believe that it starts with the kids. No, it starts with you. You know what you've been taught and you yeah. know where that otherizing has come from. And so you mentioned in your top uh, top three different books that you can read. It's up to you to read those books, to gain the information, to gain the knowledge, to educate yourself mm -hmm. um, and then pass that and apply those tools onto your children. If you choose not to do that, then that's on you. That's on you. Um, and I, I think that uh, as parents, we can't shield our children from this. We have to um, we have to have conversations with them. We have to engage with them and um, think of all the ways. Think of the ways that you taught them about everything else. If you're a Christian, you teach your kids about Jesus before they know how to speak. Yeah, right. They know how to say Jesus. Right. If, 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 you, if, you, if you teach them about your religion before they know about religion, um, you teach them about your occupation before they know about your occupation, right? What do you, what, what does your father do? What does your dad or your mom do? Mommy's a teacher. She doesn't know all the deep, intricate details about what it means to be a teacher, right. but she knows that you teach. Yeah. If you're a fighter, firefighter, your kids don't know all the deep, intricate dangers that you are faced with when you're fighting fires, but they know you're a fighter, firefighter mm -hmm. because you've taught them that. 
You understand what I'm saying? So we have to teach them about societal issues in the same way we teach them about everything else. We have to spoon feed them until they're ready to eat solid food. And when they're ready to eat solid food, we have to give them the proper food to eat so that they're not toxic. Or they're not feeding mental toxins. Yeah. And I don't have the blueprint for that. I can't give you the step by step. But if you can teach your kids about everything else, you can teach them about racism. You can teach your kids about everything else. You can teach them about sexism. You can teach them about society. You can help them to understand um, uh, uh, the, the evils of this world in the same way you would help them to understand everything else. Yeah. Man, so beautifully put. And I love that uh, because uh, I love the analogy also of like, you're going to spoon feed them, and then you're going to get them to solid foods, and then you're going to, but then you got to start getting them to taste things that they probably don't like, right? It's like, I don't care if it's green. Yeah. You're going to eat yeah. this, yeah. right? Like, you make our, listen, you yeah. don't get up from the table unless you eat your food, right? Right, yeah. But, and the, that's same the same can be said about how we educate our children. You yes. don't get up from this table until you understand what I'm trying to tell you right now. Right. But one of the reasons why we are here today, one of the many, um, is because people are afraid that they don't have the right words. In social justice conversations, in diversity, equity, inclusion conversations, most people don't speak up because they are afraid to offend. And they are afraid to not be seen as completely woke. And it's interesting because like, as I went through my uh, through through the training that I was afforded to me um, as a student leader and then as a professional in higher education, um, like I learned, uh, I learned, I got uncomfortable and I kept it moving. But I, I also know that there was a point where I decided that I was woke enough. And so mm. when I was woke enough, now let me see your post online and let me come right for your throat real quick. Let me call you out. Let me be like, bye, bye, bye. Let me hit you with the one, two, oh, right? But there is power in, in, in finesse. There is power in, in the spoon feeding there. Like when we think about coaching, when we think about coaching, uh, the great professional baseball coaches would not be great little league coaches, right? Mm -hmm. We have coaches mm -hmm. that get us through different parts of our training and, and we can play a role. And so even if you are uncomfortable with the language that is being used, even if you're uncomfortable with, I don't know the perfect way to say this so that I don't offend anyone. Opening your mouth is always better than not opening your mouth, getting a kid to get up there and try to swing the bat. You're going to, you learn to swim after you got in the pool, not before, but we got a lot of people waiting on the side of the pool to be told that they can swim and exactly how to swim, but you ain't going to know shit until you actually get in the water and put your body in motion. It's mm. the same thing with a lot of social justice training. And for me, when I got too woke um, or whatever, when I was feeling myself, I needed to check myself in that moment as well mm -hmm. um, because meeting people where they are is powerful. Congratulations mm -hmm. that you figured out that Black Lives Matter. That's incredible. Thank you for being here. Now let's think about what was the process you took to get here? How can you help usher people along that process instead of beating them over the head? That's like climbing a mountain, getting to the top and telling everybody at the bottom they suck. Like you didn't just try to climb the whole damn mountain yourself. Uh, so um, sorry, I'm on a soapbox right now, but uh, let me slip off real quick. But still, um, so it's interesting as we're trying to find the right language to use. Um, not being afraid as parents, 
not being afraid as friends, talking to other friends, as, as people talking to old neighbors that pop up on Facebook uh, or whatever, not being, not being afraid of saying the exact, like something wrong, I think is important. Like you've got to start talking. Uh, and so I would be curious, like you do a lot of training at the institutions that you've worked at um, and you've done a lot of training at the institutions that you have worked at. And, you know, we talk, uh, you and I have had many a conversation about critical race theory um, and, and whatnot. And I don't know if we're quite at the point of the conversation where we need to jump heavy into critical race theory, but if you've got a cliff notes that you can ease people in with, we can talk a little bit about it. Um, and I'd be curious to hear some thoughts, but like, yeah. how do you recommend individuals, uh, start having conversations that are uncomfortable, that are necessary? Um, well, I would say this. Um, I don't have a whole lot of syntax to offer. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if I can tell you exactly what you should say. But here's what I can help, what I believe I can help for individuals to understand. <clears throat> Racism um, is an extremely complex issue. It's an, it's an extremely complex phenomenon. And I do this with caution, but if we're talking about how to summarize it, I will summarize it in a binary, okay? So I need people to understand that racism isn't just the individual, it's also the institutional. And so if you're looking for a way to understand it and, and how to at least internalize it to have somewhat of a conversation, understand that it's not just an individual problem. Mm -hmm. um, black people and white people don't just have some sibling rivalry like we lost the baseball game to white people, you know, 100 years ago. And we just we want to get them back. Like, <laughs> you know, We don't just dislike each other because of the color of our skin. That's one of the things that really irritates me is when people say things like simply because the color of his skin. It's not just simply because of the color of his skin. There's so much more that his skin represents mm -hmm. that goes beyond just its color. Um, so I would under I would help you, I would want people to understand that it's not a matter of people treating each other right or treating each other equally or treating each other the same or being nice to each other um, or not about sitting at the lunch counter um, with each other um, or marching alongside each other. It is about dismantling institutions that have been set up historically to lock to, to offer opportunities to some people and lock other people out of those opportunities or um, slow the advancement of the opportunities of others so much so uh, that one group of people gets an advantage yeah. and um, we um, you talk about critical race theory and I'll get into that in just a moment um, but to, to summarize that point um, I would want people to understand that it is the it is not just the interpersonal forms of racism that exist. It is the institutional. Um, uh, uh, the officer didn't the officer who murdered George Floyd didn't do it just because he didn't like him as an individual. Mm -hmm. He didn't do it because they didn't like each other. You know, like they saw each other one day and they got into it and. Oh, I'm gonna go get this guy because they were trying to bring that whole, like a, nightclub thing. Like they worked together in a nightclub in a while. I wonder if they hated like, each other. It's like it wasn't on, a rivalry. Huh? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the reason why he died is because the institution of our police force 
has been positioned as a paramilitary force that designed to keep certain groups of people in line, even if I have to take your life in order to do it. Mm. Yeah. That's the institutional part of this conversation that we have to get over. Um, and so I would, I would caution individuals to think of it that way. Um, critical race theory is, um, is a theoretical framework um, by Dr. Gloria Latson Billings. Um, and there are a number of other scholars. So if I have any academic scholars out of there who know about critical race theory, um, you know, please, uh, please correct me. I know I may be missing a number of authors, but um, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings is the first um, uh, scholar that comes to mind. Um, and critical race theory seeks to offer a theoretical framework um, to educate people on the ingrained nature of race and racism. And so it centers itself on three different pillars. The first is the ingrained nature of race and racism. This reality that race and racism are ingrained in the very fabric of our nation. Racism existed before this nation had a name, a flag, or a national anthem. Mm -hmm. It existed before we were even called America. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the fact that when the, the, the Declaration of Independence was written, and it was written that people like me were only three-fifths of a human being, that is ingrained into the constitution of our nation. The fact that we had to have an, uh, an amendment to that, to that notion tells you how ingrained racism is. Yeah. We talk about a lot of the great things that exist in the, in the constitution of our, of our United States, but we don't talk about all of the other things that are existed, like the fact that women didn't have the right to vote. <laughs> like, that's ingrained into the fabric of our nation. So when we talk about the ingrained nature of race and racism, it is important to understand that it exists in many forms throughout the fabric of our nation, whether we want to, whether we want to admit to it or not. The second tenet of critical race theory is um, understanding the power of the narrative and the master narrative and the counter narrative and, and the grand narrative and being able to understand how our stories are told by people who do not experience our life people who do not experience what we go through. They, they, they have the power to tell our stories. And so critical race theory challenges scholars to change the narrative through the power of scholarship, to change the narrative by doing the work, by finding the data, by reporting the findings, by understanding the implications of practice. It challenges us to change the narrative and understand how the master narrative has been crafted for us, but we are responsible for the counter narrative. And finally, the third, a tenet of critical race theory is interest convergence. And what that means is um, the dominant, people who represent the dominant culture often don't take an interest in your struggle until it converges with theirs. Okay. So Reebok recently put out um, a statement that said, and I'm paraphrasing, but ultimately their statement said, uh, Reebok wouldn't be who it is without the black community. And that's true. Because we all know what we all know how dope the questions were, right? The AI, the Allen Iversons. Uh -huh. We all know how dope those were. We all know how dope the Shacks were, right? We all know sneaker culture that black folks bring to you know the, the table. Pump, the pump, right? They came out with the pump, man. Yeah, right. We all understand that. <laughs> um, my question to Reebok is, why did it take for an individual to have a police officer's knee on his neck for nine minutes for y'all to say that? Y'all didn't understand that when Mike Brown got gunned down? Y'all didn't understand that when, when Trayvon was gunned down? Y'all didn't think enough of it to say it when Ahmaud Aubrey was shot jogging in his own damn neighborhood? 
That's interest convergence. The only reason why Reebok felt compelled to put out a statement at this point is because they understood that they could no longer afford to be silent. They can no longer afford to be silent. In the other incidents, they could afford to be silent and be okay. It'd be okay if we just if we if we just fall back on this one. But it took a police officer to kneel on the man's neck for nine minutes and look you right in the camera. Right. With the hand straight in, in the eye. With, with the hand in the pocket, a casual yeah. killing. Like yeah. Yes. Sorry. I'm not it took that yep. for you all to understand that the black folks have been the fruit of y'all labor for over 50 years. To that I say, that's interest convergence. Now, while I can appreciate the, the notion of care and the statement that was put out. What I call them to the carpet on is why it had to happen in this format, why it had to be such an extreme circumstance before we heard from the companies that we have given our money to, trillion dollars worth of buying power for centuries. Um, That's interest convergence. So critical race theory is a theoretical framework that allows us to see the ingrained nature of race and racism. It allows us to understand how the narrative is shaped and shifted to support white supremacy and white power. And it is also uh, helps us to understand how interests converge with one another. And I think it allows us to really see how we can call people to the carpet on their true on the true essence of what it means to be inclusive and develop and to develop equitable, equitable policies and procedures. Yes. First off, thank you for the lesson. Uh, and and uh, so powerful. The way you laid it out uh, makes it makes it digestible, comprehensible. Uh, and 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 thank you for that. Uh, it's interesting because we we watch we watched companies what two we watched companies what two months ago. Right. Two months ago, every single damn company I've ever bought a sock from, I've ever bought a razor from, I ever bought a, I ever breathed the air in their store one time and they somehow were able to capture my email. (laughs) I got an email from every company telling them how much they care about me and my health. Mm. I watch, I watch, Mm. man, thank God for Subaru and it's COVID-19 and we're all in this together. Bullshit commercials, Mm -hmm. right? Like we got an email from literally every company that's ever existed. How many emails have you gotten since George Floyd was murdered? Come on. How many emails have you gotten? Right, I got oh. one. I'll be. I got one. It was from Airbnb. Airbnb put out a really great email. They donated five hundred thousand dollars, and it was well said. And I give them props for that moment, right? But like, even when we think about education, like, like uh, what my my undergrad hasn't said anything yet. Like my graduate school has, but my undergrad, like educational facilities, uh, learning, training companies that, right? You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like agencies that we were a part of. It took them a week to put out a post on Instagram. And you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like you have... I'm not going to crap talk them, but still, you know what I'm saying? It's like, where where y'all at right now? Where Where y'all at at right now, right? And, and, And so it is very interesting to think about uh, and, and, and just, just raise an eye, right. Especially to that third interest conversions. Yeah. Yeah, right? absolutely. Like, especially absolutely. right now where are these emails at, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it is, it is so, uh, disappointing, uh, disheartening, uh, but also eye opening to see we are in an incredibly important time and it is, yeah. it is devastating. It is devastating that like, if we look back, 
through all of uh, through through all of the people that have been murdered by the police, uh, publicly or not publicly. We look back at all the black bodies that have been murdered um, by the police. <clears throat> um, is it because this was the most blatant? Is it because Ooh. this white dude kneeled on this man's neck with his hand in his pocket and looked in the and looked looked right at at the camera like this is going down? Keep filming yeah. it, right? Like, is it like, is it because it's the most blatant? But it feels different. The country feels different right now um, than it has yeah. in the past. And I'm wondering if you're feeling that. I, I live in Minneapolis, right? I live in Minneapolis. And so I know I'm feeling it different than people who don't live in Minneapolis, right? I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't live in any, I didn't live in Ferguson. I didn't live in Baltimore. I didn't live in Georgia. I didn't right. live, right? Like, right, right, but right. I do live in Minneapolis. So I know it feels a little different for that for me, but it just feels different nationally. I'd be curious, are you feeling that, you know, being, being outside Chicago, um, a city that has a historical slew of some issues, um, and uh, especially with, with racism and redlining and things like that, um, yeah. why is this different? Why, are, uh, why has it taken this to get people to put black squares on their Instagrams, <laughs> right, to well, finally do it? Like, what is it for you as you look um, at it? Well, well, um, I supported the Black Square movement, but Drew Brees put up a Black Square and then turned around today and said that he didn't think anybody should disrespect the flag during the national anthem. So um, I support the Black Squares, but if, if you're just doing that just to be a part of the social media, then yeah. that you're, you're missing the point. That's like Home Depot. Don't Home do Depot. It. Home Depot coming out with a Pride logo. Get the f out of here! Yeah, Home Depot. or absolute selling pride <laughs> bottles, but you don't hear about them when trans individuals are disproportionately killed. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't. That that there, there's a lot to be said there. Um, yes. What I will say to uh, to the question about uh, difference, you know, I got to be honest, James. I don't think it's that much different than what we've seen before. I agree. This isn't that much different. Um, this isn't the first time that our people have been taken in front of our eyes. You know, this isn't the first time that we've dealt with riots and individuals who just can't take it anymore and have no other way. Um, this isn't the first time that we've seen those things. And, um, you know, I heard a, um, um, I heard a comment on, on a, on a, on a, on a uh, corporate news station the other day. I always have to um, distinguish between corporate news and public news. Um, and uh, if you're asking me for implications for practice later, I have a great format for how I think you should take in your news. But um, I was watching one of the corporate news stations, one of the cable news stations, and one of the commentators said, um, this wouldn't have happened if, and this didn't happen when Dr. King died. And I'm like, uh, yes, it did. 100, 100 plus cities, it did. Um, oh, yeah, people rioted all over the place. They yes. tore the whole damn place up. What, did you, what do you mean this didn't happen with Dr. King? Where, where did you grow up? <laughs> Who taught you that? Who's telling the story? Um, so uh, to your to your original question about it being different, um, I don't I don't know if I'm ready to say it feels different. What I will say is it feels like a tipping point. Um, more so than I feel like I felt in the other cities. Okay. Um, and, the, and the one thing that makes me feel that way is um, and I see Sister Janine saying um uh, Janine Patterson uh, saying that riots are the are the cry of the unheard. Um, that's so true. That's a poignant quote from Dr. King, and it's the it's the truth. I want to talk about violent protests in just a moment, but just a moment. But um, it seems different because of 
um, the nature of the video. There was something about the police officer looking into the eyes of the camera mm-hmm. that I think felt different uh, for me. Um, to me, I, it felt different to me. It's not different because it's happened before. Yeah. Mark Furman, you know what I'm saying? Don't, don't forget about Mark Furman, who was also on Fox News the other day. Mark Furman, you know, got up on the on the stand and they played a tape of the interview he had where he openly admitted to police brutality. He openly admitted to racialized police brutality. So it was not different. He was looking in the camera at that time during the OJ trial. <laughs> so it wasn't, di- you know, the cops being blatantly and casually taking black and brown lives is not different. It's not new. But what's different about it today um, is that it was filmed by a 17-year-old black woman, black young woman. That's different. That's new. It was it was, it was filmed you know, by, by a few other people from different angles. That's new. That's different. It was caught on tape um, with citizens who can immediately upload it and get it to the people. They didn't have to sell it to the news station. That's new. That's different. Um, and uh, I think those are the things that I that I believe are causing the revolution that we see. Um, um, to, to the to the notion of uh, to the notion of newness, um, I would just caution people to understand that none of this is new. It is a repeat. Uh, it is a pattern of behavior that has existed in our nation for many many centuries. Um, and what we saw is not just at the hands of police. General white citizens have been guilty of, of, of racial violence. The people who caught Ahmaud Aubrey and shot him were not police officers. Right. They were general everyday citizens making what they called a citizen's arrest, which tells me that white people in that position felt like they had as much power as the police. Yes. Yeah. They had as much power as the police to take your life. So um, I would just caution people to be careful with this idea of newness. Just because it's new to you don't mean it's new to us. Yeah. It's old, actually. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why people are act, reacting in the way that they are is because it's old. It's an old problem. It's an age-old problem that's been happen for, happening for centuries. What's new is the fact that we are able to tell the stories ourselves. And we don't have to wait on somebody else to tell that story for us. We don't have to wait for a movie studio to tell, to tell the story in a way they see fit. Mm. Mm-hmm. We don't have to wait for a news story yep. to tell the story in the way they see fit. Right. We can pull the camera out and tell the story ourselves. And that I think is the newness of this situation. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Uh, and, and I agree. And, you know, you and I had a conversation recently uh, where we talked about a pet peeve of yours and a pet peeve of yours is when a lot of people are now coming out being like, we need to start the conversation. We need to, we need to start the conversation. It's like, no, you need to, you need to join the conversation. You need right, to right, like, right, the, right. <laughs> like yeah. the conversation has been going right. Like, Absolutely. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and that was powerful. Right. And, and you, yeah. you had a twist on that, that I really liked um, for, instead of people saying we need to start the conversation, what was what was your twist on that? I really loved it. Um, I'm glad you said that. Yes. One, one of the things that irritates me when this happens um, is uh, our individuals who say that we need to start the conversation, or I'm hoping that we need that we can use this as a as a way to start the conversation. Um, and I believe that it is a highly problematic statement because it assumes that people like myself haven't been having this conversation for our whole lives. I've been having this conversation my whole life. 
I had this conversation when I was 12 years old and my, me and my mother were pulled over at an ATM machine by police officers who, who stopped us at the ATM machine and ran up on us. Yep. Guns weren't drawn, but they, they had the guns in their hand and said that we fit the description of two individuals who robbed an older lady, an elderly lady somewhere in the area earlier that night. A mother and her 12-year-old son fit the description of burglars. I started the conversation at that time. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Um, so it assumes, don't assume that people are just now starting the conversation. Listen, just because you just now started it, don't mean I am. Yeah. Right. Just because you just now starting to talk about it, don't mean everybody else is. The world doesn't revolve around you. Um, you said uh, uh, you're, you're, you had a good response to this last night, and you said, um, but what about for individuals who really are starting the conversation right now? And I appreciate that because there are some who are just now starting the conversation. You mentioned you were somewhere in your 20s before you were truly exposed to, uh, to, to brought to a certain level of understanding. There may be individuals who are, you know, 20, 30, 40 or 50 or 60 years old who are just now bringing this to their understanding. So those individuals, my response is this. Don't say that it's time for us to start the conversation. Use I statements and say that it's time for me to start the conversation. It's time for me to start the conversation with myself. It's time for me to start the conversation with my family. It's time for me to start the conversation with people on my job. It's time for me to start the conversation, educate myself more about how I can become a better person and how I can understand my racial bias and my privilege. Don't tell us it's time for us to start the conversation. I see that in the same way. Um, I, you, you ever you ever been, you know, uh, around a person you see you ain't seen a person in a really long time and y'all shake up, y'all dab up and you say, hey, bro, we got a link. We got to get together. Let's get together sometime. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what's up. That's how I feel start the conversation. That, that's that, that's this in the same vein. You and I both know that when you see that person, you say, we got to get together. You and I both know that you don't necessarily mean that literally. Nope. Yeah. Because so it's vague. Yeah. All I'm telling you is, if you and I happen to get together sometime, that'll be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be lovely. But we didn't make any plans. <laughs> we didn't t we didn't give a date, time, location, where we're yeah. going to eat, what we're going to do. We, we didn't we didn't go through any of those specifics. Yes. All I said was we're going to get together sometime. That's what starting the conversation means to me. What you're really saying to me is we'll talk about this later. Yep. And I would really appreciate if we could start this conversation another time. When it's more comfortable. When it's more convenient. comfortable, more convenient. Yeah. And hopefully not at all. But I really wish we could just have this conversation later to the individuals who are just now starting the conversation. I'm cool with that, but I would encourage you to look at it as an individual and say it's time for me to start the conversation, not us. Rick, thank you. Uh, I cannot thank, thank you, you enough for coming through uh, to this show. Um, it is it is very important for people to realize, and and, and I and I I want to I want to speak on this just for a second. It's very important that people realize that it is not the oppressed job to teach you about why their oppression should matter. Um, and so it was really I was very cautious in asking you, Rick, because this is this is a this is a tough time where everybody's got a lot of feels. But fortunately, there are educators. Uh, like yourself that are willing to be in both spaces at the same time occasionally the space where you are holding space for 
the needless murder of a black mm. man at the hands of a, a force that is supposed to be protecting, right? Protect and serve. Um, right. And uh, in, 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 <clears throat> in George Floyd, um, it is, you are able to hold that space while you are also hold this, uh, able to hold the space for educating individuals that maybe aren't going through it the way you're going through it. Uh, and the way that you, uh, uh, and, and the way that you spoke this evening is a gift uh, I cannot thank, thank you for you, what you taught me, right? Like I mean, you, you, I mean, even in the way that you checked me on some of my language in this conversation was, was I'm very grateful for. Um, and uh, because I'm a work in progress, um, work. but work, work and progress being the key words. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> you know what? Let me, let me say something. If I can offer just a couple of key takeaways. Um, I just want to offer a couple of key takeaways that I think that, you know, will be helpful. You, you mentioned being a work in progress, and uh, I'm a spiritual man, as I mentioned to you before. Um, and uh, one of my favorite scriptures uh, says, faith without works is dead. Mm. Faith without works is dead. And uh, I believe that in order for us to move forward, it's going to take faith and works. And um, a lot of people have the faith, but they don't have a work ethic. They got all the faith in the world, sure. but they're not willing to work for it. And then you have some folks who have all the work ethic but they have none of the faith. And so to that, I say, um, spiritually, those two must converge. We must understand what it means to have faith and how that couples and is connected to the work that we must do in order to move forward. But for those who are just doing the work, it is not enough to just do the work. You must have the faith as well. Those two must work in tandem. Um, I would also say to individuals, um, if you're asking about what black people want, it is not for a chance to sit at the same lunch counter with you. It is not for the chance to ride on the same bus with you. It is not for the chance to shake hands with you and live in peace and harmony. A black agenda exists in, in uh, a black agenda means offering um, equitable opportunities in the areas that we have been historically left out. Over the 401 years that we have been on, in, on this soil, in this nation. We have been deprived of a quality of education. We have been de deprived of economic opportunities, entrepreneurship opportunities, yes. real estate and home ownership with, with redlining. I saw somebody mention that before. Mm -hmm. um, we need to dismantle the prison industrial complex. We don't need to reform it. We need to dismantle it. Um, as, as my Andrew Cody says, uh, we need to end the school to prison pipeline. We need to offer, you wanna, you wanna talk about reparations? Pass House Bill 40. I want my 40 acres and I want my mule. You want to talk about past reparations? The six-year-old little girl, uh, 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 George Floyd's little daughter, is is trending this today. About she was she was on 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 uh, uh, sitting on her uncle's uh, uh, shoulders, smiling, mm -hmm. saying, "My daddy changed the world." You want to change the world? Give guarantee her a college education and give her a low interest, no money down, no interest home loan to start yes. when she's 18 years old so she can have access to property and economic wealth. You want to you want to change the world? Give her those opportunities. Don't just give her a symbolic gesture. Don't name a street after her father. Don't just give a resolution. Give her an opportunity to succeed that you would take away from her if you didn't if this wouldn't otherwise circumstance. You want to talk about equity? We have to give equity, not equality, but equitable opportunities in the areas that we have been historically locked out in voter suppression. That's that's a black agenda. 
That's an equity agenda. Yes. Once we realize these things, then America will live up to its true promise. The true promise, not just the promise for white men and women. Um, one other thing I want to say real quick. Please, man. Please. Um, stop misquoting Dr. King. Stop. Oh, are they are they ready? Are they ready? For I need this? you to stop misquoting Dr. King. <laughs> when Dr. King died, he was yes. one of the most hated men in America. And he died broke. Many people don't know this, but Harry Belafonte had to pay for his funeral. He didn't have the money to pay for his funeral. And he left behind four kids. How many kids I got? Four kids. Four. Dr. King left behind four kids. Malcolm X left behind four kids. All both of these men died before the age of 40. And they died broke. Stop misquoting Dr. King. He didn't die in his sleep. He didn't die of natural causes. He was murdered. So when we speak about Dr. King, we don't need to speak about the death of Dr. King. We need to speak about the murder, the vicious murder. He was shot in the face, bro. He was shot in the face in a suit on the way to work. Don't tell me I need to pull up my pants when Dr. King was shot in a suit. One of the one of the most famous quotes Dr. King has that people like to misquote uh, comes from uh, an essay he wrote. And I'm going to close on this called The Rising Tide of Racial Consciousness. And in that essay, Dr. King said, an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, everywhere. Right. But a lot of people don't know that there's an A portion and a B portion to that quote. We only quote the A portion. Yep. And, but the full quote says an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Therefore, no American can afford to be apathetic about the problem of racial justice. That's the full quote. Right. People That's don't want to hear quote. that part, though. People can't. Therefore, people, they're, right, not ready for that. they're not ready for it. They're not ready for it. Therefore, no American can afford to be apathetic about the problem of racial justice. You want to quote Queen, quote King, quote him appropriately. An injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Therefore, none of us can afford to be apathetic about race at this time. None of us can afford to be apathetic about race and racial justice at this time. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak and to be a part of your enormous platform. Like I said, we go back, we got roots. Um, and, and, I, and I truly appreciate that. And keep doing the work um, because it takes all of us to do it. And, um, you know, while, while, it, while I am exhausted by being the person, um, by, by, being, by feeling like I have to educate white people on my blackness and on black history, yes. I still take that, that mantle on for the ancestors who couldn't do it, for the ancestors who didn't have the opportunity to do it. And furthermore, I don't trust white people to tell my story. No. I don't trust you to, te to, teach, to teach me about me, mm -hmm. to teach my kids about me. I'm going to tell the story. And we have to tell our story in the most accurate way. And so I appreciate the, uh, the platform to do that. And um, uh, I appreciate you allowing uh, this moment to resonate against, uh, uh, to resonate with your, with your platform as well. Um, so thanks for having me on, bro. Really yeah. appreciate that. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough. Uh, what a what a perfect Dr. King full quote to end on. Uh, and, uh, and thank you, uh, even in the midst of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, uh, uh, taking this opportunity to teach me, um, and, and, and in a moment where people are listening a little bit more, uh, mm, your yeah. words resonate louder. Word up. 
And so thank you, uh, thank you for for still for still screaming into this because um, this can't just be some echo chamber. Um, <clears throat> so absolutely. Uh, yeah. I also want to say one more thing. I call for the open condemnation of racial violence and anti-black racism. I call for the conviction, not just the charging, but the conviction of all four officers who were involved. I call for uh, uh, for 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 them to be sentenced to the maximum. Uh, the maximum sentence and put them in a maximum security prison. Not some nice little prison somewhere off. Drop them in the same Rockers Island you put them niggas in. Drop them in the same Rockers Island you you put all Pookie and Ray Ray and all of them and their family. Drop them in the same space you put them in. I call for the destruction and the de- and, and I call for the, the deconstruction of systems of inequity and the constructions of new systems. That is my call. That is my charge. I don't want to see another Facebook status of how much you hate racism and how we all need to come together. If you really want to help, call for the charge and the conviction because because police officers have been charged before. Sure, plenty of times. They have been charged before, but call for the conviction and the accountability of officers with police violence. If they know they're going to end up in the same prisons they put us in, they'll think twice before they shoot. And I think that that needs to happen. It is the accountability. It is the federal legislation that we need, not just hugs and kisses. We need federal legislation. We need state legislation. We need action, political action. Mm-hmm. I call for voter, voter, voter confidence. Vote on all down ballot elections. Don't just vote for the president. Vote for all down ballot elections, all the way down to your school board and your alderman. Vote for them all. I call for the end of voter suppression and the end of voter depression. Don't be depressed about the vote. Go out and do what you need to do, but also understand that it's not just the president. This didn't start with Donald Trump, and it doesn't end with Donald Trump. Nope, Um, he's still going to stay tweeting too. Right, but it does start and end with you. So each individual has to own their privilege and own uh, what they can do and their responsibility in this notion. Um, We often hear, um, uh, one of the things we hear a lot in community college systems is that uh, enrollment is everybody's issue. Enrollment, everybody's responsible for enrollment. One of the things I'm known for saying in my college is that everyone is responsible for equity. Equity is everyone's issue. Mm -hmm. And so while you might not have been a slave master, doesn't mean you don't have a slave master's mentality. While you might not have participated in in acts of racism as you know it, doesn't mean that you don't have racist ideology, racist mindset. We all need to work on what we need to do better to to, to contribute to the world. But I call openly for the conviction of all four officers and the passing of federal legislation that allows us to hold police and racial violence accountable, finally, once and for all. Yes. Yes. Let's get those records public. Uh, right. Like let's get those. If yep, we, it's got to be public, right? Like, I mean, two, two, two of the four officers, right. Had how many, how many prior complaints and, and whatnot. Right. And all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Ryan O'Rourke, fairfight.com. Stacey Avery, support that, support that. Mm-hmm. And I ain't got nothing to sell you. I ain't got no books out right now. I got nothing like that. All I have right now is my heart and my heart bleeds right now in the streets. And I can't go out and protest like I want to. My protest has to start here in the basement, has to start at the dinner table. It has to start out in the yard. Me and the kids is working. It has to start here. Um, And I encourage everybody here to do what Bill Hook said and organize anywhere. You don't got to go out to the protest in order to organize. You can organize on your job. You can organize with your social media. You have power. You have agency. You have a platform. And I want people to understand that. 
Yeah. So, so thank you, bro. I appreciate it, man. I'm, I'm fired up. I don't, I don't say I'm on the soapbox. I'm on the sneaker box. I'm on a sneaker box right I've now. Seen, I've seen your sneaker um, game, and that is true. <laughs> that or, a, bright, a bright orange box, too, if I know my man correctly. Uh, yeah, but so, thank yes. you, bro. I appreciate it, man, and I appreciate yeah. everybody who signed on. Um, uh, and uh, thanks for having me on tonight. It's, it's been great. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I want to open it up. If you have the, if you have a little bit, I'd love to open up yeah. for question and answer. Um, and I love for people to put some questions in and, and talk about it. Um, and so uh, if you're listening to this podcast right now, uh, make sure that you go to my YouTube page, just look up James Robolata on YouTube, uh, and you'll be able to see this question and answer portion for sure. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. So y'all have a great night. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> if you could do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.